1: Welcome to the 115th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Hillary Hendershot. Hillary is the founder of Hendershot Wealth Management, an independent RIA based in San Jose, California, that oversees nearly 75 million of assets under management. What's unique about Hillary, though, is the way she's crafted a niche of not just serving but trying to empower women clients with a combination of both her traditional financial planning offering, a coaching program for women trying to accumulate wealth, and a very successful podcast focused on empowering women to take control of their finances. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Hillary has been able to bring in an average of nearly 20 million of assets per year for the past three years through her podcast and website, what she talks about on the podcast to connect with her listeners and who it is she tries to attract how she set up and launched her podcast, even though she's not a techie herself, and how she overcame her imposter syndrome fears to launch the podcast in the first place. We also talk about the initiatives that Hillary has launched to try to further scale her services to clients, from a series of one-to-many online courses to teach wealth-building skills, to a service called Ignite Investing that heavily leveraged technology to support working with smaller client accounts, To her current coaching program called the 50K Wealth Multiplier Experience, where Hillary does deep dive coaching with women building wealth and is successfully charging $10,000 per year for her financial coaching services entirely outside of her traditional financial planning offering. And be certain to listen to the end, where Hillary shares how her own role as a business owner has evolved over the years, how she built her own self-confidence as a financial planning professional why Hillary no longer works with a business coach herself and what she's doing instead, and why she continues to stay rooted in her financial planning practice, even as she continues to try to build more courses and grow her coaching clients as well. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Hilary Hendershot. Welcome Hillary Hendershot to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thanks, Michael. I'm super happy to be here.
1: I'm I'm looking forward to this episode. You know, we had a gentleman named Roger Whitney on a couple of weeks ago, talking about how he had built this uh, niche practice, going like really deep into retirement planning, and had built a podcast around it as a way to get clients, and is now getting like ten and twenty million dollars a year of new clients off of this podcast. And 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 you, I think, are, are have actually been podcasting longer than he has. I know you have a a podcast called Profit Boss going back to 2016. Like I think you've been doing this longer than at least any advisor I've found that has launched a podcast and stuck with it. And I know you're having tremendous success with it as well. In a completely different direction, you know he was he was focused on was or is focused on retirees. And your your podcast is focused primarily at speaking to women and empowering women around their finances. And so I'm just i'm I'm excited to talk about what that looks like, like this intersection of building a practice towards a niche, building a podcast to reach them, how all of that comes together to the point where you're actually growing an advisory firm in a in a niche with a podcast. like what is that what does this look like?
2: Well, I think that Roger and I came upon it in a different order. I think from what I recall, he was already fairly successful, both in life, like financially and as an advisor. And he just sort of started, decided to start the podcast. Whereas my, my effort with the podcast was more to put a stake in the ground at the time in 2016, to put a stake in the ground as being different. I wanted to be the advisor who was empowering. I wanted to speak to people with emotional language and be supportive and provide ways for them to impact their money mindset and which is something I think most advisors either can't or won't do and so so and I was also building my practice. I had just gone out on my own in 2014 and I was trying all kinds of different things. So my my when I launched Profit Boss Radio it really was about building my practice, but at the time I was kind of fiddling around with a bunch of other stuff, coaching and an online course and stuff like that. So I was kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what stuck. And similar to what Roger said, I I found that speaking is Really, something I love doing. It gave me, I felt a form of self expression. There were so many things I wanted to say to people about money and what I see people say in the media about money and all the things that we think are true about money that really are not true. And so it actually, it actually was a little bit of therapy for me. And I found, I discovered, and that I love having a microphone and it's pretty cool that there are people out there who tune in to hear me whenever I drop an episode in their podcast player. So it really has evolved into something I did not expect.
1: There is an interesting effect that I find that you for advisors, I guess, do podcasting or just really any kind of content marketing. I mean, I think this is true in blogging and, and people that do video and such as well that just, I don't know, there's a subset of us that are like, I... I have something to say that is different than what other people are saying, and I I don't feel like people are hearing what they need to hear. So I'm just going to get up on this soapbox and say my two words, and find some platform that lets me do it. Right? Like we can you can podcast that out, you can blog that out, you can write that out, whatever your style is. But just it just starts with this like, nah, the world is wrong, and I need to say something to correct it." it. Seems to be the the like the starting point for. A lot of advisors who go down these paths.
2: Yeah. And the cool thing about low barriers to entry and massive, massive distribution on blogs and podcasts is that you can find someone in the tail if you are in the tail, that it's a niche interest. And I mean, you know, there's a podcast on every topic under the sun and people listen to them because everyone isn't mass market. And I think that that's beautiful. gives people an opportunity to to do things that really weren't possible before, when you had Big Brother saying what got, got to get printed this week.
1: Yeah, and and there is like you make a powerful point there that there's this combination of low barriers to entry, right? Like I, pretty much anybody can spin up a podcast. If you maybe want a little bit of professional assistance to get it set up, you might spend a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. But in in the grand scheme of things, like it's still not a not an overly burdensome expense for for most advisory firms and. You know, you you may not compete against whatever the, the biggest podcasts are out there, you know the the Dave Ramsey and Susie Ormans of the world, but you don't have to. Like, you can find someone out in that very long tail of you know whatever people don't like those podcasts and are just looking for something a little bit different. And if you're the different thing that scratches the itch for them, then they're going to tune in and listen to you. And when most of us like, we don't have to reach millions of people to build a good client base. Like. Usually just need a couple dozen clients you got a pretty good client base so you, you can we have like this combination of low barriers to entry and we don't need a zillion people. we just need a few that connect with what we're saying. to me is why it's so fascinating these these platforms from blogging to podcasting as a way to develop business and get clients It, it really is kind of like just you can set up your own soapbox and shout your own message and you may not resonate with everyone, but you only have to resonate with a few. To have to have a successful business. That's
2: right. I mean, I have two, two responses to that. And the first is, it's funny that you mentioned Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey, because I used to have so much insecurity and fear that I th- would spend hours critiquing the things that those two people would say. And I was just flustered and furious that they had so much credibility and such a big platform in the world, because you can easily poke holes at a lot of the things that I mean, Susie Orman is easier to poke holes at, but I don't, I don't do that anymore.
1: But help me understand this fear. So, like the this fear of they have this giant platform, and I can poke holes at them. So, if I make a platform, someone's going to poke holes at me, like that kind no, of fear. No, no, no.
2: I, I, I had a lot of. I mean, I guess the typical phrase for it is. um What is it called when you you, you're you're a fraud? You're afraid people are going to think you're a fraud.
1: Oh, um, imposter uh, syndrome. Syndrome.
2: Yes, (laughs) right. And when I was cutting my teeth in this industry, I mean, I looked around me and I saw a bunch of old white men in suits, and I look at myself and I see someone who's the wrong age and the wrong gender, and I can't figure out why anybody would hire me, and that was my predominant thought. And so when I started as a podcaster, of course, I'm comparing myself to all the biggest people out there. And and what I've discovered is that that's first of all an inappropriate comparison. Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey both started at zero. Their podcast is at the top of the things that they've done, the books that they've published. They're media moguls. And this isn't maybe even necessarily related to financial advisors per se, but I think there's a lot of fear and insecurity around there. When you start a blog or a podcast or a financial planning firm, you automatically compare yourself to the top 10 list at Barron's and it's a mistake. You should compare yourself to someone who's one or two steps ahead of you. And so now when I see Susie Orman's success and Dave Ramsey's success and a host of other people, right? It's like good for her. You know, she's doing that. Of course she gets a hundred thousand downloads a week. She's been on television for years, Right. Anyway, I, it's it's nice to have come out the other side of it and not have so much fear, worry, concern, and insecurity anymore.
1: So, I, so kind of two things here that's coming to mind in on this. One, like I I, I love this point of I don't know, like when when you're starting your journey, don't go and compare yourself to someone who's already ten or twenty or thirty years into their journey. Like that's. Only going to freak you out, like if they're doing a good job at all. 10, 20, 30 years of compounding means they're probably going to be way ahead of you. So like don't don't compare yourself to where they are. At best, compare yourself to where they were. Or if you don't know where they were, just find someone else who's merely one or two steps, one or two years, one or two somethings ahead of you, and compare to that so you understand where you're trying to go.
2: I think so. I think so. I think that that comparing yourself to Oprah or Susie Orman, or anyone of that caliber is just a setup for suffering. I mean, I know that I don't just think that I know that, that those people are in the stratosphere right now, and they won't be forever for whatever reason. But that doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with with me or you. I'm not trying to build a media empire. I'm building a profitable financial planning firm where I serve my clients with expertise and skills. That's it. I don't need to be a famous podcaster. And it I, I couldn't really grapple with that. I think the whole, the whole the status of the, there's the part, the personality brand is the thing right now, right? Everyone's myname.com And so there's a lot of marketing out there that makes you think you need to look like a celebrity. And I think that it just, I think you have to really get clear who you are as a marketer. It took me many years of floundering, trying to look famous, trying to look a a particular way when I finally figured out, oh my God, all I have to do is talk to these people who are already listening to me.
1: So what was it that changed? Like you you talk about this as you had imposter syndrome. You 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 don't now. You've come out on the other side. So like what what changed to get you from the fear you had to where you are now where you're you're comfortable and confident about this?
2: I think that running a business puts you through the ringer. And I have had great success and great experience and it's been a good run. So I'm not saying that it's been bad. I think that some days I feel like my job, I'm a professional problem solver. Like I call myself a financial advisor, but really all I do is resolve problems. And that comes in every aspect of the business, the marketing, the operations, the sale, the prospecting, the sales, every bit of it. And so there some of that. It just distracts you from the mind talk that when you start and you have no business, no clients, you sit in an empty room with, you know, no carpet, nothing on the walls. You're just sitting there waiting for people to come. Your mind talk is loud. I think that the experience of being an entrepreneur and hiring people and having to fire them and figuring out how much to pay yourself and having to resolve client concerns and market dips and it's just I'm too busy for that. I'm <laughs> and I have a functioning prospect prospecting system, right? We have an opportunities dashboard. I have qualified prospects coming into my business on a regular basis now. So I don't I'm not in scarcity. I'm not in insufficiency. But I think everyone who starts in this business probably is unless you're the airline pilot or the engineer who starts when you're 55 with all of your friends from the Air Force or Lockheed.
1: You know, it's an it's an interesting point that you made that just sort of like being the doer, once your business gets going, you you get to a point where like, I I just don't have the time to sit down and freak out about this stuff because I'm too busy to take the time to think about it, which in retrospect is probably good because then it, it just kind of works away the fear because you don't have time to sit down and be fearful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or you get to where your calendar is so full and you finally have the realization, I either have to go on a wait list or I have to raise my prices. And that's physics. It's not a it's not like I'm trying to elevate my revenue. I mean, that's great, but physics says I'm overbooked. <laughs> right? So, and then that's a that's a confidence builder and that's real for me. That was real for me. So, I'm yeah, it's just nice to not be in some of the I'm comparing myself to you places I've been. You know, you're talking about 4 or 5 years
1: ago. So, tell us a little bit more yeah. about about profit boss radio itself like what do, what do you what do you do on this podcast
2: yeah <laughs> So what
1: do you do on a podcast?
2: So it has evolved, and in the beginning, I had so much I wanted to say. It was like I couldn't stop thinking of ideas for episodes, and I wanted to bring in experts who could talk about little fringe topics about money. So you know, ways to save for college, or how to maximize your kid's chances of getting into the college that they want, or how to make sure that you pay your taxes appropriately as a business owner. I would bring in experts. So and a lot of the people who want to come on podcasts are are business owners. And I had to be pretty clear in the beginning. If, we're, if you're going to come on the show and you're a business owner, we're going to talk about your business finances. So I do think that that's not a traditional financial planning topic. I, I don't often hear people talk about, you're a business owner. How do you figure out how much to pay yourself? How do you determine how much money to take out of your business accounts and put in your personal accounts? That's a big decision. And I don't hear people talking about it very often. So I would get folks to talk about things like that. I have brought in celebrities like David Bach and his daughter. I have brought in women, some of whom were anonymous, some of whom were not as anonymous to talk about their own financial missteps and subsequent recoveries, which I think is really empowering for people to hear like no matter where you are it doesn't mean that you're stupid or irresponsible and that was my that was my thing in the beginning because i had had my own financial troubles and i Recovered from them by figuring out kind of how to rewire my brain. Sort of a, I did my own little neuroplasticity thing, and then I said, "Well, look, I've done this for myself. I'd like to do this for other people." And I've, I'm already a certified financial planner, so why don't I combine the both of them? So, and one other cool thing that I get to do on my podcast is react to current events. So I can kind of do commentary on what's being said in the media about the new tax code or the most recent market dip or what's happening with Facebook stock or Bitcoin, right? It's not a variety show. It's very thematic, but the entire design is around empowering women to take charge of their money. I'm all about women having large amounts of money in accounts that are titled to their name only in some cases, right? Because women are reticent to do that. Not all women, but many. And so those are my, those are my people. I want to be the woman who says, no, no, no. We need to make sure that your assets are yours and protected and it's okay for you not to give it to the kids or your mom or, and that's not to say you shouldn't share with your family, right? But I want to be the voice of you need to have enough, and here's how to do it.
1: So you bring up an, an sort of an interesting item there of anything. You said like you know, I believe women should have large dollar amounts set aside in their own name. And I feel like that in and of itself is a little bit of a controversial statement. Right? I mean, I yeah, I I, I mean, I, you know, on the one hand I think there are some folks out there who who would just say, you know, look at, hey, you know, you're in California anyways. They're legally they're community property assets anyways. They're marital assets anyways. Or even just a, a set of folks out there who I think would take a a well intentioned but just opposite view of, no, no, no. You're a couple. You're working together towards joint goals. Like you need to join your finances to pursue your joint goals as a couple. Like that's how couples should work. So, I mean, how how do you I know I'm trying to ask. Like, how do you get comfortable with the fact that like, as you said earlier, like part of the challenge of folks like Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey, you know, you they put themselves out there and people are going to take shots at them. Like, do you worry that you're putting out a, a, a statement like that that I'm not even to say it's right or wrong, but at the at the least, like it's something that not everyone will agree with. That is that is a somewhat controversial statement, I think, at least.
2: So certainly I'm a financial planner in California, which is a community property state. As we all know, any assets earned or saved during the marriage are property of the community. And that nothing I said contradicts that. This is what I mean. When I say things like that, I mean it to be a clarion call that – that women historically have let their husband save in his 401k. Now it's only recently that people had to have to save in, in trust or brokerage accounts after tax accounts to achieve financial success. You know, my, how I got brought into the business 20 years ago, the vast majority of clients were managing IRAs that are in his name. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, sure. The IRA becomes hers when he dies, as long as she's the beneficiary. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's It's a particular relationship that the woman has to money and her money and her household finances, right? And so I'm really attacking this energetic problem or relational problem. I, I in no way advise people to try to amass soul and separate property during a marriage or anything like that. In fact, I think that when married couples keep their finances separate, it's kind of silly. It's kind of artificial because they're both on a team working toward one goal. They're just using two different buckets and two different methodologies. It doesn't really make sense. I'm more looking at empowering women to think differently about themselves as equal partners or sometimes not equal, sometimes the the bigger breadwinner, right? And that it's okay. It's okay. She should max out her 401k. I've literally met people who aren't putting money in their 401k, but are putting money in the brokerage account.
1: Because she feels guilty about putting too much money in her name?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Literally. So i'm'm I'm, I'm not defying community property laws nothing like that
1: <laughs> no no i I understand but just I don't know I mean do you do you worry about people who are gonna take shots at coming at it from the other direction
2: I think that would be great that would be fantastic
1: so you want <laughs> you, you want to have that debate with whoever wants to come at you on it
2: I would lo- I mean publish it in the biggest platform you can find and let's do it
1: I think it's interesting that it's that that you're you know, that that's your mentality around it, right? I, again, like there's this, as you said, fear and imposter syndrome. That I think a lot of advisors struggle with in their practices, and then certainly when they, if they're going to think about something like podcasting, where it's like, oh, oh my god, I'm going to, I'm like, I'm going to get up on a soapbox and say something. That's that's really scary. About you know, am I a fraud? People are going, are people going to think I'm a fraud? Like, do I do I know as much as I need to know in order to stand up on this soapbox? And and that you are now so at the other end of that, that you're like, I I know my stuff. and anybody wants to disagree, just come at me.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think when you start, so studying for the CFP is one thing, but when you start to interact with real human clients, you get that everyone is not an econ and we don't all do it by the book. And that really wealthy people are sometimes really freaking miserable. And it's like fascinating. Sometimes it's like being a zookeeper. You know, and so I think you begin to build a repertoire of I mean, just as an example, I had a guy in my office the other day who who has about five and a half million dollars of net worth. He got rich because he worked for Apple, and now he's petrified to sell his Apple stock. And so at the same time, all he's thinking about is the risk of giving up the potential to hit it out of the park. In reality, he's actually at massive, massive risk in the other direction, and he can't conceptualize it. And I think that is fascinating. And so to be able to just pull up a microphone and talk to people about that so that maybe 15 people won't suffer the fate he's suffering now. It's pretty cool.
1: How did you get this launched? Like, yeah, just like pulled out a mic and started talking into it. I mean, how does
2: No, how I does wanted this to, come about? I wanted to do it right. I had, I have a bunch of ex- media training. And so I wanted to have a big launch. And so I hired a team that wrote me, gave me a launch package and they did the, you know, the musical intro and they did all the technical bits, all the Libsyn bits and the iTunes bits that I know nothing about and wrote the show description for me. And then, you know, I created a launch team, basically begged, borrowed and stealed stole from anyone I've ever met and said, please, please, please post about my podcast on this day, like subscribe to it so that I get some downloads. I recorded three episodes so that they all dropped on the launch day. And we did, we just did as much media hype as we could.
1: Okay. And, and how do you find someone that, that like gets you launched to do this in the first place?
2: You mean the team I hired to do production?
1: Yeah. This like law, you know, Setting up Libsyn and iTunes and all all these pieces. I mean, I think for a lot of advisors, like just the that's this like, I all right, I know my financial stuff, but like I don't know anything about podcasting stuff or what the heck Libsyn is. Maybe we know iTunes because a lot of people have iPhones, but like wouldn't even know all the to, all the technical podcasting terms you just threw around, like Libsyn and show descriptions.
2: Oh, <laughs> so actually that's a good point cuz i think i i think it's not very technical but of course if you don't know it then you wouldn't know it so i was on a road trip and i listened to john lee dumas's free how to podcast podcast course it's an evergreen i don't even know if it's still in itunes but it's like 21 episodes or something and he goes through every aspect of podcasting from equ- equipment to to production to sales and marketing, to how to sell uh, advertisements on your show, to how to be a podcaster who uses your podcast to build a business, which is my example. So by the end of that road trip, I was pretty excited about, I mean, public speaking has always been something that I love doing. I'm one of those just crazy people who, I if you say, will you come speak at my thing? I'm like, give me a microphone. I'll run up on that stage. And that's just always been me. So I don't necessarily suffer the fear of public speaking that other people do. Although podcasting is kind of cool because you can edit out the stuff that you wish you didn't say, which you can't do at a live event. <laughs> so that was a plus
1: right that that little editing bit is is helpful although i i have to admit from the other end of it I, like having gone through this doing the the podcast myself that i just found like i i still can't listen to myself do the podcast drives me nuts like all all i can hear is oh i wish i asked that question differently oh i wish that, i wish i did that part differently so i i hear story like i i listened to the first 3 episodes just to make sure that uh like it was coming out the way i expected and our editors are doing the right stuff and all that and and i've not listened to one of my podcast episodes since uh someone on our team does always listen just to make sure like there wasn't an editing problem gone haywire or anything but i found like i i i can't listen to my own podcast i'm still too self-critical of it like i would just i would go back to the editors and have them hack it to pieces with all the things like oh i wish i had done that a little differently i wish i had done that a little bit differently and like you know, if you're just speaking it, as you said, like in a in a public speaking context, like whatever you said, you said you can't really take back. So it is what it is. And and I found I basically have to treat the podcast that way because if I give myself an edit, the chance to edit myself, I never stop trying to do it.
2: Yeah i I think I've been like that on certain episodes, and I've cut them up so bad that my editors couldn't they, they said to me you've got to stop just stop with the camtasia editor you've got to knock it off uh but i do often force myself to listen to my podcast episodes and i think it makes me a better podcaster i think i think I listen that- to
1: other podcasts to try to be a better podcaster <laughs> <laughs> gotta take input in somewhere but yeah or or you know the kind readers who are or listeners that are Still gentle enough to send us something through the website of like, hey, you know, really like your podcast, but I really wish you would do this differently. So happy um, to take that, that constructive and, criticism. And you know, with
2: your audience and knowing who you are, I'm not surprised. I don't have anyone, anyone send me stuff like that. Nobody. <laughs> and that's not to say my show is perfect, right? It's just a different audience.
1: I try to be very open to it. I'm like, you know, I mean, you can you can send me the criticism like nicely and constructively. You don't have to bash me for it. But like I... You know, only way I'm going to get better is with some feedback, and and I just found like I, and I mean I think this is true in in a in a broader sense as well that just what we hear in ourselves and try to self edit is frankly not always the stuff that the that the other side hears anyways. Like there are parts that I would freak out about and I would ask someone about it. Even the first few episodes, like did that whole part sound weird? They're like I didn't even notice what you are asking about, and then the stuff that people. Point out or raise questions about is not at all the things that I was even focusing on, anyways. I mean, part of it was just this, I know, humbling experience. Like I am not the best judge of my own self editing. Like not only we self critical, but we're self critical about the wrong areas. And I found I just had to let it go and let other let other people that I trust give me feedback.
2: But it's good that it works for you that way my experience is that if i'm curiously engaged in an interview if i'm interested in what i'm talking about that the episode is going to be good that and, I, and there are times i mean there are definitely interviews i've recorded that i haven't aired and i just put my forehead on the desk when i click stop recording and i are said there,
1: are there actually <laughs> ones where you did like the whole interview and then didn't didn't air it
2: Hmm. it's about 30 percent of the time i would say i stop the guest and I say, listen, I just need you to stop saying, um, you're really putting my editor on extra work and I don't pay her enough to justify what it's going to take. Like it makes, it doesn't make you sound good. (laughs) Yeah. Or I've stopped an interview to say, can you please turn off the noise from your computer and your
1: phone? Well, I get get that. I get get the like, can you, yeah, you turn off the background noise, but- I don't know like it just it's i mean it is what it is you got to deal with these situations, but saying to someone outright you're you're you don't speak well, you need to stop doing that like in i yeah you, know, you didn't sorry you you said it's you said it a little bit nicer than that, but like it's what do my you say? Show,
2: and it's my business and it's my my audience, right? And when I'm doing a show on how to increase your confidence or how to negotiate for more, and the guest is saying um every other word, it just doesn't jive. It just doesn't
1: jive. Right. You're not you're not really conveying the empowered confident woman no. image you're trying to <laughs> convey when they can't <laughs> confidently talk about being a more confident woman.
2: Exactly. Thank you for getting that.
1: I see that gap. Yeah, I see yeah. that gap.
2: Yeah. So do you want me to rewind and, and talk about the actual steps I took to launch the podcast? I can go through it pretty quickly. Yeah, just
1: power four. I don't want to rewind like power and I love the discussion. But yeah, like, so how do you just how do you get launched? Or I guess, how did you find the people to get you launched since you said you, you did this with the team around you?
2: So the How to Podcast podcast is essentially a big commercial for Podcasters Paradise, which is a community that's hosted by the host of that show, who's also the host of Entrepreneur on Fire, which I believe is the most profitable podcast ever. And so I joined Podcasters Paradise and then in there, they pay a referral fee or at the time in 2016, we're paying a referral fee. They, they had this do it yourself launch package. And if you wanted more help, then you could hire this group and they, I think they shared fees or something like that. So I just went with their group and I I think it was called cashflow podcasting and they did a great job. And I think I, do you know, Ben?
1: Yes. Ben's team produces this podcast. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> I did not know that small world. Okay, so we actually use the same team. So I guess that's going to be a really good like reference for Ben and his team since we're now running successful podcasts talking about this. So uh, for anyone who's curious, we'll put this in the show notes since uh, this unwittingly turned out to be a very nice plug for their services. Yeah, we started we started working with their team in well, I guess 20. What did we start 2017 in, in the same way and just had them help us do the whole setup. I think we, I can't remember what we paid, a couple thousand dollars to do the launch originally.
2: Yeah. I did a different package. I think I did the $7,000 package.
1: I think I might have been a five.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I just justify it under the whole concept of delegation, it's like, look, I got to run my business. And you know, it's paid off. I'm not a DIYer. I'm a delegator who works for delegators. So, so then, and then I really tried to have big names on the show in the beginning and people who were leaders of communities so that their community members would listen to hear their leader and hopefully subscribe to my show. I just try to be really careful about episode titles. I try to keep it really—I mean, not clickbaity, but interesting and short. Because unfortunately, you can't see very much of the episode title in iTunes. I mean, I do think that once people are subscribed to their show, they're going to give your episode a shot when it drops. Having people subscribe is a really great thing, but you still have to kind of follow the rules of marketing.
1: So we, I like—we keep saying up for this, and then I keep distracting us. But just the like. The, can you talk to us a little bit more of just the, the setup process? Because right? I, again, I think for a lot of advisors, like even if they want to go down this road, the starting point is like, I literally know nothing about how this technology stuff works. Like, what do you do? if you want to make a podcast thing happen.
2: (laughs) So I just did whatever they told me to do in Podcasters Paradise. I literally bought the Yeti microphone. I bought Camtasia software so that I could edit stuff. I have a different setup now. One of the coolest things I've done is buy myself a desktop stand mic boom arm. So my thing doesn't have to clamp onto my desk. It just sits on my desk. And I can't figure out why more people don't use that. But as far as techni- technical, that's really it. I mean, I record on Skype. Used to be that I would convert that, I guess it's a .mov file to a .something else in Camtasia and send it over to my production team. But they just take the raw files now. So it's pretty darn simple.
1: And, and I think it, you you make a powerful... Point in, I think, in all of this, that you like, you don't have to be a technical sound person to do a podcast to to run a podcast. Like, you you got to bring the you part to have conversations with people or or uh, and find your guests and and talk through whatever themes you want to talk through and make whatever points you want to make. But you don't have to be a technical person to to do the rest of it. It's still in the grand scheme of things, like not that expensive you know, a couple thousand dollars to, to to get set up and get going and, you know, some ongoing dollars for editing. And you can get it down to the point where, Hillary, it sounds like you you do it essentially the way that I do it. Like I, I set up my guests because they're people I'm connected to and I record the podcast because you kind of got to be there for that. I, I don't do anything else. I mean, other things have to be done, but like other people do that who are really good at it, and I give them some dollars to get it done because that's a business expense. But I don't don't do the sound things because that's not my expertise.
2: That's right. I have people who find copyright-free music for me and edit it in to stuff that I say. And if I don't like the way the promo sounds, I say, no, I need different music or layer it in differently here. And they do it and it works. And I don't, I mean, it is, I mean, I know that you go back, Michael, and do you, we probably listen to this show because I know you do a recap, but a synopsis at the beginning in your intro. And I even sometimes try not to do that because it takes so long for me to script it and record it.
1: Just from a practical perspective, I actually got into the habit of just jotting notes to myself as we do recordings. So like I've got a I've got a little Evernote screen. So I've got like an Evernote notebook of all of our podcast episodes. And each podcast episode is a note. And 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 in each podcast episode, I just jot some notes as we go of like, this was a cool theme to mention. This was a cool theme to mention. So I end out with like a page or so of just really shorthand notes, you know, small snippets. Because of course, I'm trying to stay engaged in the conversations. So I can't like write a book as I'm going. But just, you know, jot reminder notes of like, key phrases, key sentences, key themes that came up so that when I get to the end, I can turn those notes relatively quickly into into that little in two-minute intro that I record at the end, and we put it onto the beginning.
2: I might steal that tip, Michael. That's pretty good.
1: Go for it. It it, it works well. Just keep yeah. it open. Jot, jot, a, jot a little note every now and then.
2: Very good. Yeah. And I find anytime – I mean, scripting stuff takes – takes a while. So I try to minimize the amount that I have to script. I did an episode that I now consider an anchor episode. And that's one of the cool things. If you become a podcaster, by the way, and you have a content-based podcast, you can cr- record anchor episodes that are especially well produced or contain a lot of data a lot of a lot of detail and you can refer back to them which is super cool because it creates your podcast your show as a body of reliable information but i i spent 30 hours scripting episode 77 of profit boss radio it was like And once I started, I couldn't stop because I, it was like I was giving birth to something, you know? And, and I, after that was recorded, I said, I'm never doing that again, ever.
1: (laughs) So what, like, what, what was, what was magical episode 77? Like, my goodness.
2: Episode 77 is called Seven Steps to Wealth. And it was my it was my framework. I want to put forth the key conceptual things and skills that people need in order to build wealth. Because anytime you see someone who's trying and failing to be rich, one of these things is missing, right? And it's like, Decide, plan, ask, speak, protect, invest. And as I'm saying these things, Michael, you, I know you know someone who's failed to do one of those things. And it's difficult to describe to them what they're doing wrong unless you have an articulated framework. So now that I have this episode, now I, I have a coaching program about it, and I, t- I refer back to it on my podcast. And I have groups of women around the country who are working the seven steps on their own without me. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So, (laughs) and it lives forever. It's a forever resource.
1: So how does this turn into business for you?
2: So it's a lot of trial and error. Okay. You got to figure out what works. And uh, in 2016 and 2017, I believe I brought in 20 to $25 million of assets, I launched mid-2016, so that's not accurate. But it was a $20 million a year trajectory. Okay, so it was probably 10 in 2016. And basically so wait, filled...
1: Wait, it's like 20 I mean, 20 million per year or 20 million like cumulatively across two years or a year and a half?
2: Of course you would ask that. So I believe it was 30 million in half of 2016 and all of 2017. Okay. And also basically filled the seven steps it, the coaching program that's around the seven steps to wealth uh, wealth framework is called the 50k wealth multiplier experience that was a 11 person mastermind and that was 66,000 dollars in revenue to my business to my company and filled that from the podcast so that gives you a sense of kind of what it brought in the first 18 months
1: yeah that's and, that's a big number in and of itself like just 30 30 uh, Sixty six in a in a in a class and and just and thirty million dollars of assets. I mean, there there are a lot of advisors who spend twenty years trying to get to thirty million dollars of assets. That's like their their cumulative accumulation of clients over a career. That's a lot of assets coming in. So we're uh,
2: yeah, I was really happy.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so I like. I mean, like, how does someone go from being a podcast listener to? To becoming a client and having you generate millions of of dollars of of inflows? I mean, is it just like you just record your messages and be your awesome self and people are like, I want that woman to be my financial advisor and contact you? Or is there more to how you actually get them to do business with you?
2: So... I think it's interesting because I did listen to the Roger Whitney episode, and I think that his call to action is probably better than mine ever has been. And that harkens back to what I said at the beginning of the conversation, which is that the podcast was my stake in the ground about being different. I wasn't going to talk about retirement. Notice that the, the name of my show is Profit Boss Radio. His show is The Retirement Answers Man, right? He did a much better job of titling his show to get traditional financial planning clients. I was trying to figure out if I could or wanted to do something very different. So I never made direct calls to action. I have a contact form on my website and people reached out on the website. And, you know, not only that, but it become, it, it takes on a life of its own. So I've had multi, millionaires in my office who call me a radio show host. You host a radio show. I saw that. That's so great. I told my kids to listen to it. They've never listened to an episode, but it elevates my credibility in their eyes. Okay. So I would call that a benefit or a, pro- a profit, an ROI from the podcast that—that that it was one of the seven or twelve touches that it took for that person to hire me, and that happens quite often. I mean, I've actually run into people in public who say, oh, "I listen to your podcast," which is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a micro micro celeb. So it's always nice when I feel like I do get that leg up in terms of of credibility. And so so kind of rolling forward to 2018, in 2018 my new assets under management from the website exceeded assets under management from the podcast. And but they can't be separated, right? Because every week I publish a blog article and show notes from a podcast episode. So that's all SEO juice that goes into how people find me on the web. And then the fact that I'm also a podcaster, which some people think is a radio show host, is right there front and center on the website.
1: And so it in and, and so from your end it's sort of this blend like Some people find me from the podcast. Some people find my website, but my podcast adds to my credibility. So they still decide to do business with me and it just becomes this part of like the aggregate Hillary brand that gets people to sign up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm not dumb, right? When I see leads coming from the web, I think, oh, I need to put more resources into my web marketing. I mean, to be totally honest with you, my website has been an afterthought for many, many years. I mean, it looks good and whatnot, but I learning SEO, was it seemed out of reach for me. And so I never paid attention to it. Well, as soon as the leads start coming in, it's like, well, I'd be a fool to turn away from this. So there's new skill sets to be learned. <laughs> So I actually brought in an SEO consultant for the first time this year. And we're now doubling down on being smart
0: on the website.
1: So from that perspective, so how are you, do you, well, I guess, do you know, like, how are people finding you from the website then? If it's not, they listen to podcast and they go to your website, like, what are they, like, how are they finding your website? How are you getting people to your website to do business?
2: Well, I currently come up on the first page of results for financial planner, San Jose fee, only financial advisor. I think it's Silicon Valley or San Francisco Bay area, something like that. So it's, it's organic
1: search. Yeah. Just good old fashioned search engine optimization for local search.
2: Right. And I had a good friend who is an SEO expert and she did a bunch of research for me and she showed me just like, And again, hearkening back to that conversation we had about paying attention to the person who's one or two steps ahead of you, you search for the terms you want to come up with in your area. Look at the people who come up first, second, and third. Go figure out what they're doing. Literally copy them. And I did.
1: Yeah. Like literally just, you know, if you're, I don't know if you're, if you're a local advisor in Boise, like just type financial advisor Boise, see who comes up ahead of you and go look at their website and figure out how they're beating you.
2: Right. 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 They're, pro- they're probably on three or four different organization websites. Maybe it's the Rotary. Maybe it's Kiwanis. They've maybe got themselves on some newspaper website where they maybe write a column or just just they promoted themselves and got themselves on some top 10 list, but it's a big link back. That website that they're on has link back juice. So now you need to go make friends with that journalist and get on that website.
1: <laughs> So how much did the firm grow overall last year then from all of this digital marketing, blogging, SEO, podcasting stuff?
2: Let's see. So I knew that you would ask something like that. So I'm looking at quarterly revenue. First quarter of 2018 was right around 150, then 160, then 170, and then 185, 190. So we have about
1: that's that's total assets under management.
2: Uh huh. That's quarterly revenue. Oh,
1: that's quarterly revenue. Okay.
2: Uh huh. So I'm looking at about between eleven and oh, I'm I'm sorry. I only have year over year quarterly increases. So I don't have the percentages, but that sounds like about ten percent a quarter.
1: Yeah. Wow.
2: Yeah, it's massive growth. It's a lot to manage.
1: Ten <laughs> percent a quarter. Yeah, that's. <laughs> a lot to yeah. manage. And, and so that's, that's all business that just, so, oh so I guess, so those are core numbers. I mean, that's, that's 60 or $70 million cumulatively of asset flows from all these different sources.
2: No, my current AUM is 75 million. Yeah. So I probably started the year at 50 and went to 75 and then I had the 66 K of revenue from the coaching business. Yeah. So, and as you know, our revenues are trailing, so my seventy five means I'm already at seven fifty for this year
1: that's the the joy of the assets under management model the the trailing revenue always lags quite significantly in a growth world so as you look at the business here, so you're now you said you went on, on your own in 2014, so you're like Five years into the business and seventy five million dollars, so when you started like were you were you starting from cold in twenty fourteen or where where were you previously?
2: so I spent many years working in my parents' firm, which is also based here in San Jose. My dad was probably one of well he was a first to enter the fee only fiduciary model, okay, so I remember sitting on his office floor when I was six or seven years old. And I tell people until I was about 17, I literally thought my dad had a best friend that I had never met named Ira. And (laughs) so this was my childhood. And I thought I wanted to do something a lot sexier. I thought I wanted to do something corporate. I went out, kind of bloodied my nose on the brick wall. And he brought me in to his firm. My first year in the business was 1999. And so it was like, bam welcome to the business, because that, of course, was the year of the dot bomb. And But going through a time period like that really has you earn your stripes. And so so when you kind of fast forward, I had, in the beginning, waning interest in the industry. I thought it was very technical and very boring. And it wasn't until I got enough prowess with the actual skill set that I figured out it's actually about people. And that I could bring my self expression to it, and that it could be about relationships, and that's when it really got interesting and fulfilling and exciting for me.
1: So, how did that? How did that transition happen? Like you, you went in your father's business. Your father dragged you into the business, and you 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 dealt with the other quant stuff for a while until eventually you'd done enough. That you're like, oh wait, this actually isn't so bad after all.
2: Well, in the beginning, because I had worked in high-tech marketing, so he brought me in and I said, okay, I'm your marketing manager. You know, it was kind of like the epitome of nepotism. He kind of let me do whatever I wanted. And I think that that was both because he wanted to empower me, but also because he really had no clue what to have me do. I mean, I was completely green. I was a 24-year-old female and, you know, this was 1999. So, and his, his client base was his age, 30 years older than me. So... So I spent many years doing that, redid the website, you know, made marketing collateral, but the key was I sat in on on client meetings. So I started to get to know these clients and of course I wasn't allowed to talk in the meetings, but I got to know their stories and their narratives and I saw them come for meetings quarter after quarter year after year. And I started seeing nuances in their storylines, their families. You know, we went through a couple deaths. We had a client who was a victim of fraud and literally My dad chased her around town trying to find her because she was withdrawing $50,000 from bank after bank after bank, paying somebody who had knocked on her front door, right? So, I mean, it was just really interesting stuff. I got that people are really interesting, (laughs) right? I'm really people first. And, you know, I read blogs and resources like yours so that I could stay up on the technical stuff, but it's not my core interest.
1: So what was the path in your father's firm? So you started out on the, on the marketing side and and being the, the silent observer in client meetings.
2: Right. So one day, so there's a woman who, there was a woman who wanted financial advisors to hire her to speak to them and their clients about a book that she had written called Don't Worry About a Thing, Dear. And she was a woman who had been widowed and she had a, a woman who was an assistant. This woman just came to this meeting and I didn't think much of it. We hired this woman. Her, the author's name is Helga Hayes. She came and spoke to our clients about, about what it is. for women to take part in the family finances. And again, this assistant person was there. Her name's Kathy. And about a year later, Kathy called me up and she left a message on my phone. And she said... I need a new financial advisor for various reasons. And I remember meeting with you and how great your firm was and your family. And I'd like you to be my financial advisor. And so I, of course, think this person's going to have, you know, a couple small annuities and $40,000 in a checking account. So I, call, cause she, all I knew about her was that she was this person's assistant. So I called her back and I said, great. So how much money do you think we're talking about? And she said, well, it's $2 million. I couldn't even speak.
1: So you're you're, your first client out of the gate. It's not a bad, not a bad way to start.
2: Right. I've read vis- I've, I vividly remember she came into the office and my parents had said, well, she called you. So she's your client. I guess you're going so to have remember- to deal
1: with this now.
2: <laughs> I put the contract in front of her and I gave her the pen and I said to myself, Hillary, shut up. Just don't say anything. Just let her sign the co-. like." Because everything in me is going, why are you signing this contract with me? I have no idea what I'm doing.
1: So just- imposter syndrome in like full in full force for you there.
2: In full force, right. She's still a client. She's still a client. So it turns out she retired early. She made a lot of money in a local tech company. And so she retired at the age of 50. And why she was acting as this woman's assistant is it was just a passion project for her. So you know, assumptions be damned.
1: So so was that like was this essentially your transitional moment from I guess I'm not solely doing dad's marketing now. I guess I'm an advisor now since I just got my first client because she came and said she wanted to work with me.
2: Yeah. And then the interesting thing, the next thing was Facebook. Now I started talking about what I was doing on Facebook and I had a handful, maybe six or eight people that I used to work with. And mind you, I don't have a long working history. I'm 26, 27 years old. And uh, but people who I used to work with reach out to me, and I remember them saying, "Well, you know, essentially, we used to work with you. We, I know, I know you're smart. So what, whatever you're doing now, you must be good. I now need a financial advisor. Let's do this, right? One of those people had had come out of a divorce with ten million dollars. Another one had inherited four million dollars right? So my personal Facebook page is a very profitable place for me. (laughs) And I, I didn't, it was, I wasn't doing marketing on Facebook. I literally was just talking. I was posting. I didn't, I wasn't strategic about Facebook at that time. So I was able to build up, you know, I had about 20 million under management and that was kind of, I don't know. I just got, it just came to me. And I started
1: doing. How, how long were you, how long were you going before these like former, well not former friends, but uh, friends from your pre-advisor days started, started reaching out. To Reached
2: you. out without me marketing to them. Yeah. I think it was, you know, I'm guessing now, but three or four years I probably spent two and a half years really fully being marketing manager person, sitting in on meetings. You know, I was like open filling out forms and opening accounts, and then my my practice started to build, my confidence started to grow. I think I passed the CFP exam around that time. So at at that point, it was kind of like, oh, okay, this I can actually manage my own career at this point.
1: So was there a like a formal transition in the practice? Like, okay, Hillary, you're no longer the marketing manager, like you're now officially an advisor with the firm?
2: Oh, I I mean, I'm sure that I went through and went down to Kinko's and reprinted my business cards 18 times <laughs> lead advisor or chief i don't i don't even know all the dumb titles i went through and i stopped calling myself marketing manager definitely and i started paying a percentage of the client's the the revenue the fee revenue that i was earning to the house so i was paying my part of the office space and there was an admin and like that. So, I was transitioning out of a base salary and into an entrepreneurial income
1: and found that's what you like to do.
2: I started to have a lot of passion about what I could do. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't want to be my dad's marketing manager. Anymore. (laughs) And, you know, just to give you a sense of how that transition phase went, you know, I came in as the business succession plan in 1999. It's 2019. My dad's still working full time, seven days a week sometimes. (laughs) So it's that age old story, right? Of I'm bringing you in to take over my business, except, ha, 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 I'm not going home.
1: And is that ultimately, I mean, I I can't help but notice now you, started in your father's firm you are now on your own <laughs> so it, it was that ultimately what drove a transition just you were like so i came in to be your succession plan we've been doing this 10 plus years like are you are you leaving anytime soon and he said no then you said i well then i will like how how does that come about
2: Yes. With, with nuance though, it was more like, I really wanted to go out on my own. I really had all these ideas about being a, finan- a female financial advisor for women. And I, again, I wanted to do, I mean, one of my, I, I, one of my MBA program colleagues reached out to me and said, are you a financial advisor or are you like Tony Robbins? And I, I, I realized <laughs> when he said question. that, yeah, yeah, that the kind of impression I was leaving people with, but I I was kind of trying a bunch of different voices, messages, right? And my father's firm's brand was pretty traditional, pretty stodgy, pretty formal,
1: and you know that's he said retiree clients that he goes after,
2: yeah. Yeah, he's got his own thing and his clients are attracted to him and his conversation and dialogue. And, you know, he said, well, you can do that under this umbrella. And I said, you know, I really need to be self-determined. I really want to do this. And and by the way, I'm perfectly positioned to buy your business in the future. This doesn't mean that I can't be your continuation plan. I'm just not coming to this office anymore.
1: How hard is it to get to that conversation? I, mean, I feel like for, for a lot of firms... Yeah, like for a lot of firms the 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 only like it's hard enough trying to figure out how to be the child that's the successor to a parent's practice i feel like the only thing that's harder than that is explaining that you're not going to be the successor <laughs> in your parents practice cuz you want to go out on your own after you came in to do that originally how does that conversation go
2: well i'll be honest i Uh, let's see 2014 I got married in 2013 so my husband at the time and I was so you can tell I have a big personality right I'm no wallflower and I got it from my daddy and he and I are like (laughs) he he and I like two big dogs in a room and so we were we were at loggerheads I was wrestling the bull to the ground on a daily basis and I would come home and I would be sad or unhappy or unfulfilled or complaining. And finally, my husband said to me, this is impacting our relationship. You know, you're constantly unhappy and I love you, but what what do you want to do? And it was him saying that. And I I knew in my heart I, I had to go. I was like, oh, okay, that's a cost I'm not willing to incur. I was willing to incur any, I guess, emotional cost on myself, but when it became a group conversation that was it for me. So it was within a couple weeks I went into have a, a conversation with my dad and his wife and I just let them know that I would be I would be leaving and that I would be going out on my own and that I was eternally grateful to them for giving me what they gave me and that they should stop paying my salary. <laughs> and i agreed by the way to take i i took my clients with me obviously i took my book of business but uh, i also agreed to keep paying the revenue share and so to this day i pay i pay the house i pay his house and i so you, share that so you, on the
1: podcast you pay the rev share on on new clients or just the portion that no, became, the portion that came with you
2: that's correct and that's my way of making it right because they put a lot of resources and time and effort and energy into me. And that's what I felt was the right thing to do.
1: And I guess from a practical perspective, just makes it a little bit less financially challenging for the business on their end as, you, as you're breaking out to not have to literally watch their, their revenue top line and bottom line go backwards as well because you're breaking out.
2: Yeah, I mean, they got to stop paying on my base salary. They got to stop paying on my MBA loan, and then got to keep earning the revenue share. So, hopefully, we're all better off. And again, if if he wants to sell me his business later, he will. But it's not critical.
1: So, were there? You know, if you were making this transition and like you're you're moving away from some salary you were getting, your you know, they were covering costs. That you want to have to cover on your own, and you're still paying a, a rev share back to them, and in, in you know appreciation for building you up. Like, what does that transition look like financially? Just like, how much assets and revenue came with you? Is that a blocking point or part of a challenge of going out on your own?
2: I got so so, so I'm blessed in that you know my husband was able to financially. Support that transition time. So let's say I came out with $180,000 in recurring revenue, like I'm just guesstimating, that's approximately right. And then a quarter of that is going back to my parents And in the beginning, I just, I hired an intern, a quote unquote intern from the MBA program at my alma mater, which is Santa Clara University. I brought in a woman that I used to work with in a previous career. And we, I mean, to describe it, Michael, we just made as much noise as I knew how to make. I did every speaking gig I could do. I paid for tele—I didn't pay for television. I paid for television training, and then I flew my rear end around the country and did local news segments. And you can see those local news segments on my website because that was how—that's how you leverage media. Like people love television. If you're on television, you're a celebrity, which equals credibility. And I realized that that's not how financial advisors always do it. And in retrospect, I'm not. I'm not sure, I would do it that way again. But I'm saying we all have startup capital. We all need startup capital. And my startup capital was m- my own energy. I mean, I just. I ran as fast and as hard as I could. And those people that my intern and the gal who the gal that I worked with at a previous company, they didn't get compensated fairly. I gave them a revenue share, but there wasn't much profit. It was net revenue, right? I was like, "No, I'm not going to pay you if I'm if I have promotional costs to cover. So, we're going to go sell this thing and by the way, I wasn't selling, I wasn't giving them a revenue share on on financial planning clients. I was trying to sell a course. I was selling a a financial course called your rich retirement Academy, no longer in existence, by the way. So, and
1: um, so, so tell me about this. Like what, what was your rich retirement category? And like I said, Academy Academy. And, and, and why were you selling that and not like the assets under management thing you were already doing with the recurring revenue? You broke I'm telling out with? you,
2: <laughs> I spun my wheels for a while. And then the net of it is I wanted to sell something that scaled, I wanted to sell it for 400 bucks a pop to 10,000 people, right? Like that was that was my thing. I wanted something that scaled. I didn't want to have to raise my minimums. I wanted to have an educational product and essentially be, I guess it's Dave Ramsey, Financial Freedom, what's it called? Financial Freedom University, that thing.
1: So <laughs> what, like why having been in a firm with recurring revenue and and you've seen at least presumably some reasonable profitable growth for your father's firm like what what led you to break out and not want to keep doing the financial i'll call like the traditional financial advisor model
2: I thought and it wasn't that I didn't want to be a traditional financial advisor I love that it's just that as you know we're basically in a qualified prospect acquisition business. This business is so saturated that and and the competition is so fierce for every client that I wanted to create something different. I just wanted to be different. So I figured if I could get famous selling a course that scaled and made me 4 million dollars a year and I just made that number up from nothing by the way, that people would know me and then I could really dig in and start advertising or promoting myself as a financial advisor. I mean not then like I would wait. I didn't mean I st- stopped being a financial advisor. I never did.
1: I just like this past like I figured first I'd make like a four million dollar highly scaled course and then I'd go and ask them <laughs> if they want to be my if I they want me to be their advisor.
2: <laughs> I know. Isn't it funny? <laughs> I mean, look at, I'm in Silicon Valley. Everything scales. If you don't have scale and you're not disruptive, you ain't nothing, okay? (laughs) And so I, I mean, I really worked hard to do that. And I built a, then I, so after your Rich Retirement Academy, which I think maybe I made, maybe I made $6,500 total on, I built a course for business owners. So how business owners can handle their finances. Well, that made me $35,000. So I'm getting somewhere, okay? (laughs) And then at one point, so then I off, so then I launched Ignite Investing, which was for investors with four hundred ninety nine thousand dollars or less, down to twenty five thousand, so between twenty five k and four ninety nine k, and I launched that program. And again, I thought that would scale. Is this another and like, then,
1: another e course kind of program?
2: No, nope, Ignite Investing is literally comprehensive, traditional fiduciary financial planning. I offer the investment solution is just DFA's balanced fund, DGEIX. And so everyone has only DGEIX unless we're pulling assets off because they know they're going to spend them this year or next year. And then they're in like the Schwab money market fund that pays 2%. So it's very simple on the investment side. We're very clear with people. There's an age cap, right? And we you can't be 55 and in DGEIX.
1: So so, what are the requirements then? Like, there's an ass, there's an asset cap and an age cap. There's
2: a there's an asset minimum. Okay. I mean, obviously, if, if you have more than five hundred thousand dollars, then you're just a traditional. I mean, my minimum is one million now, but at the time it was, if you're five hundred thousand, we just roll you. We, we celebrate you. We write about you in the newsletter, and then we roll you into being a comprehensive, a more diversified portfolio. You get you get nine tickers instead of one. You graduate. <laughs> yeah.
1: And and what was the age cap?
2: It was nuanced and had to do with your, I wasn't, I'm not, I I can't really remember in detail and I don't want to say it on the air. Let's say approximately between 40 and 45.
1: Okay. Okay. So, and, and this was, again, meant to be another version of more scaled because it was a very simple, straightforward investment thing. And just you You do the planning work up front, but then once you get through the upfront planning work, it's much more efficient on an ongoing basis.
2: Yeah. And we leveraged a bunch of technology to make the delivery of that comprehensive financial planning easier on us. Each client gets a financial action checklist that sits in this portal that we and they have access to. So we can go back to it and review it and update it rather than just sending an email follow-up to is what you would normally do with a kind of a a high-end client.
1: And what technology are you using to track all these financial action items?
2: I can't think of the name of it right now. It's the one that's secure and designed for financial advisors.
1: Precise FP?
2: Precise okay. FP, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks.
1: Absolutely. That tagline works, huh? <laughs> secure and designed for financial advisors. Oh, it's Precise FP. Okay.
2: There you go. There's that's the one. Yeah, and so we 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 offloaded to technology lots of the discovery and data gathering, we didn't offer them a, an in-person conversation as a sales part of the sales process. There is literally a video on the website of me talking about the, about the program, why I created it and why there's only one ticker and what you can expect. And it's just, and so it's a sales conversation and we would invite them to go watch this video. And if they wanted to be a part, they had to pay two 99 to get started. And then we would open their accounts.
1: And did you find traction for that, that kind of, you know, purely digital onboard yourself experience?
2: So it was very fulfilling. And a, lo- a lot of clients came in in the beginning because there was probably a backload of clients from the podcast, uh, subscribers who wanted to work with me. And the people who get it really get it. I mean, we've got a, a couple people who are just passionate marketers for the program. They've they've referred us to 15 friends, right? And they just really get That it's cool that someone at their asset level can work with someone who's not going to sell them insurance. So then I got to be part of Entrepreneur Organization's incubator program, which is called Accelerator. And they asked me to calculate profit per client, which I did. And within a month, I closed the Ignite program.
1: (laughs) It was not as efficiently scaled as you thought. (laughs) (laughs)
2: it's just like when you look at profit per client and i look at the value of i have a junior she's not a junior advisor but i have a financial planner who works for me and uh, associate advisor is her title and she is so hugely valuable to me i absolutely cannot run my business without her and the thought that a hundred clients who have fifty thousand dollars each would take up her time choked me Right. I was like, I can't, I I can't do it.
1: But it it was like, that was the problem. Just it, it, it wasn't unprofitable for your time because it wasn't your time they were taking, but it was enough staff time that it still wasn't profitable in the end.
2: That's, that's right. That's right. And we, so we closed the program. So there are no, there are no more new clients coming into ignite. However, when people fall off or or don't or fail to transfer their assets, we quote unquote open up a new spot. So we just opened up two spots this week at our team. We just had our team meeting this morning, and Jen's going to reach out to two more people who are on the wait list. I do have a wait list for the Ignite Investing Program, and so and it's something I get to talk about. Uh, I went to speak to a group of women, and I talk a lot about the Ignite Program and why I do that and what it means to me. And I had a woman come up to me, and she said, "I just really want to work with you. I love that you." Support women and she's got $7 million, you know? So it's, it's a thing that stretches across socioeconomic status. It's a a universal interest. If you're a feminist, you're a feminist, whether you react to that word, I don't know, but if you're, it, it, it softens people's hearts. It's my give back, right? And it feels good to be able to provide that service to the people we're providing it to.
1: Okay. And, and in the meantime, eventually you found this podcasting and now website stuff that's growing the heck out of the core practice anyways.
2: Yep. So this year, after my daughter was diagnosed with leukemia in October of last year, I looked at my calendar. And as you can tell from everything you and I have talked about on this so far in this conversation, I have been all over the place. I have done media courses, technologically empowered financial advising, traditional financial advising. I've done video, I've done podcasts, I've done public speaking. And all of a sudden my calendar doesn't belong to me anymore. Right. Cause she has, we're at Stanford, we're at Stanford Children's Hospital twice a week. And so I was like, okay, world, what do I do now? And the answer is you have to focus on that which is most profitable and that you enjoy the most. So I am not doing anything other than traditional, high-touch, comprehensive financial advising. We raised our minimums this year. I say no to prospects. Uh, Not often, but I'm... I'm willing to say no to prospects without, uh, without a second thought, because all of a sudden the thing that's more valuable to me than money is time. And so it's just very interesting. So I'm focused on the web. I mean, the podcast is happening in the background I'm still, I love it, but I'm focused on developing my website and marketing the, the coaching program, which is going to get me out of the singularity right so if if financial advisors get digitized at least i have this program <laughs> where i can take people and and give them skills advice and consultation and improve their net worth the program was tremendously successful last year I'm co- i've commissioned a white paper to talk about the actual results from the program so this year i'll have a better marketing leverage point and I just have really high hopes for it.
1: And that's your what you called it 50K wealth multiplier experience. That's right. Yep. And and so what is that course? Like what are you doing there?
2: So it's a combination, really three prongs. They get monthly coaching calls with me, which are about their money mindsets and their beliefs and specific things that they're doing to increase their income. They get coaching calls with Jen, and she is all about automating their finances. So we dig into their cash flow. We look at what's their overhead expenses, and we set up a separate account. I'm mean, just like the profit first method, except we apply it to personal finances. Okay. So we automate their savings, and then we give them a, a checking account where they can spend for disposable spending. I call it today's fun. So she does that with them. And then we get together three times over the court, physically together in my office. And we have a mastermind and they literally go around the circle and they say where they, where they are and what they're struggling with. And the other women in the group support them, give them feedback, offer suggestions. And so it, it hits them at every level. We're literally digging into their bank accounts and telling and there's no investment advice, okay? But we're literally digging into their bank bank account. But many of them became financial planning clients, okay? I mean, I had one woman who, when she applied to the program, she told me she had $750,000. It turns out she had $2 million. She just didn't know. It was all over the place, right? It was just overwhelming for her. So, so it's emotional. It's practical. Last year, so the promise of the program is to raise their net worth by fifty thousand dollars over a twenty-four month trajectory. So, if I can alter your savings and spending so that you're saving more and spending less, or especially debting less, then you have a an increase in your net worth. And so, we call that your mul- your multiplier number. And so, the multiplier from last year's program was almost one point six million dollars so we made a one point six million dollar difference in eleven women's net worth without investing their money it's pretty cool
1: and and if this is designed to be sort of small group format like how many how many women are you looking to put into the program this year ten and and only ten spots okay and and you're charging five plus thousand dollars just to get to the
2: it's ten thousand this year ten
1: thousand dollars so that's a an interesting thing unto itself like a lot of advisors are trying to figure out how to sell a you know ten thousand dollar financial planning fee or a five thousand dollar or two thousand dollar financial planning fee you're selling a a ten thousand dollar I guess you call it coaching course, program course coaching program is that what you call it
2: well it's I mean it's called the it's called an experience right the wealth 50k wealth multiplier experience but essentially it's a mastermind and a coaching program. That's it. Cuz it's it's a separate contract from the it's not a financial planning contract, right? So I don't manage any of their assets until and if they hire me at some point during the program.
1: So where do you find like where do you find 10 women who will pay you $10,000 for this? Like is this also part of the aggregate marketing umbrella that just comes from the podcast and the website and the rest or do you have a whole separate process about how you market and offer this. It's all
2: one effort and you know I'm going to put some dollars behind a Facebook ad campaign to promote a couple landing pages that are talking about the program and I will do I have a large a couple large speaking events booked. Uh, I love to speak to groups of women. So you get in a room with 250 women and you talk a little bit about this program. I'll tell you right now, people come up to me at the back of the room, they wait till their friends aren't looking and then they come back to me and they say, I need your card.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because, because they don't want everybody else to know they're, that they are
2: yeah, got they're financial struggling.
1: challenges or that they're willing to drop $10,000 on a course.
2: No, no, that they've got financial challenges. So women, both wealthy, wealthy women don't want their friends to know that they're wealthy. And women who have financial struggles don't want their friends to know that they have financial struggles. It's kind of – kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, we had somebody in the program last year who had $400,000 in combined marital income and over $220,000 in credit card debt. And she just couldn't figure it out. She's like, I'm an engineer. I can't, what is happening? Every month I try to pay the credit card bills off, but the balances keep going up. And, you know, she has a skill set that she's good at. She earns high income. So we handled it for her.
1: And so- where does this go from here for you? Like, are you, does this become the thing that you want to ultimately build? Like you're going to have a hundred women going through this coaching program at some point instead of (laughs) a hundred financial planning clients.
2: I have no idea. I don't know. And I love financial planning. It is just in me to figure this thing out. I have a big soft spot for people who want to achieve results who don't have the resources to attain the skill set to get there. And you know, as well as I, that earning money is a separate skill set from preserving it, that there's lots of people out there earning lots of money who make a huge mess with it. And it's just my, my thing, you know? I mean, I know my purpose on this planet and it may not be to be a financial advisor. I would say it more like that people live free and this is how I'm manifesting that right now. So, and, 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 and sidecar, you know, I've got a couple clients who work for Google. And of course, Google is all about automating everything. And this client said to me the last time I met with him, he said, I want you to know, I see what you're doing online in this coaching program you're doing. He's like, you've got it right. He said, in 10 years, your industry is going to look massively, massively different, but no computer is ever going to be a wealth coach. And I said, okay, well, then I'll keep doing it for a while. And it's, I love it. I love doing it. It's fun. So why not? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, eventually you'll have to hire, instead of associate advisors, you'll have to hire associate coaches just to handle the the number of people.
2: I know. I, and that's if I want to expand. I mean, I, I'm only opening 10 spots and that's all of 2019. Nothing else will happen in this program in until 2020. So it kind of remains to be seen what happens. And I mean, my life is in flux and I, in 2019, I designed my life to fit around my daughter, And this is, this works because I can take those calls from anywhere. Right. And I wanted to capitalize on the momentum that I think got created in 2018. And, you know, I've, I've severely limited the amount of time I'm available for client appointments on my calendar. You know, all of March is blocked off right now. I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not at top processing speed to use a computer metaphor. My, my daughter's at the end of a chemo protocol and it's tough. It's tough, but you know, it's nice to have built a business that I will probably take, you know, more than, I I mean, certainly more than a quarter million dollars in personal compensation and benefits from. It's probably somewhere, because a lot of the expenses that we incur are actually benefit us as people, right? (laughs) So it's like somewhere between 250 and 350. And it's like, I'm sure glad this chemo diagnosis didn't come when it was you know, nothing. It's interesting what it's teaching me about how I can design my life and my business to work for both me and my clients. And it does mean saying no to some people. And I, I've got that. I've internalized
1: that. <laughs> and and how is your daughter just what's the what's her prognosis at this point as you're going through chemo?
2: Yeah. So she has acute lymphoblastic, well, it's called B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It is the most treatable, the most curable form of childhood leukemia. She is at the end of, so the initial super intense chemo phase is about seven months and we're like at the end of month five. So like 30, 40 more days. It has been brutal, but I can't imagine Michael the other way. Like her disease is 95% curable. What if it was 5% curable or 15% curable that I don't want to live in that world. Right. So I I mean, I, I, feel upset about it and it, it takes my, it takes my mental capacity, but it's like, wow, I, I don't know how, I don't know how other parents do this thing. So she's going to be completely Fine her test results and progno- uh, like every time we go see the doctor, they call her their shining star, you know, so thank, thank God for that. God bless those doctors at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital and modern medicine and all the researchers and med- medical professionals who came before me. Cause if it were up to me, she'd be gone, right? Like I didn't, I didn't even know what leukemia was. And by the way, she completely prefers her dad. Do you have this in your household?
1: <laughs> well, ours, ours are split. So I have I have three. Yeah, some some want to come to me when they're when they're upset or struggling. Some prefer mom. We've even watched one of them is kind of flipped back and forth. You know, as as uh, as siblings came like my my oldest was mommy's girl, then her little sister came and she couldn't have mommy anymore cuz mommy was you know, breastfeeding and and uh, dealing with the newborn, so then she swung to me, then then she kind of swung back again, and yeah, we we they definitely show their preferences. Although I found their preferences change over time.
2: <laughs> I have a complete reverse edible complex thing happening in my house. It's <laughs> said Robert, I was trying to change her diaper and she said, it's daddy's job to take care of me. And I looked, I, yeah, I looked at him and I said, would you contradict this please? He goes, what, what? I don't, I didn't hear it. I said, Uh uh-huh. I know. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So no rest for the weary. Parenting truly is a thankless job.
1: It's a guy thing. Like Even if I'm winning because the toddler just said, I want daddy to change my diaper. It's like, Ash picked me. Exactly. <laughs> no, I got to do the poopy He's like All right. Here we go. <laughs> so uh, so as you look back over this like this evolution, I I don't know. I guess I I'm just wondering like you 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 have these series of courses that you built most of which didn't get much traction for you at least the early ones. You did the traditional advising business. It is getting traction, but you're still determined to get Going on the coaching program, which is now starting to get its own traction. Like, I don't know. I, I, like, I'm, I'm struck that just you're still trying to do both in parallel, or you haven't gone all into one or the other yet.
2: Well, first of all, I'm not gonna break the golden goose. I mean, <laughs> there's no, there, I'm, there's no way ten
1: thousand dollars each for ten women ain't a bad goose either. If you want to scale that. <laughs>
2: But it's not recurring, right? I like waking up on January 1st and knowing pending some major economic event, I got at least $750,000 a year in income this year. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. You know, my business mentor through the entrepreneurs organization says the same thing. I, I guess I'm just, I, it's hard for me to say no or stop or let go or I just have all these passions and things I want to explore and I think no one's doing this wealth coaching in a documented systematized way and I mean not no one but it's not being done widely and it serves a market that's in the middle it serves women you know just to give you an example this woman who discovered she had two million dollars she one time they have it was a financial advisor who came into her office to talk about the 401 40- One k or maybe it was a 401k she asked him a question and he laughed at her she went home and put all of her money in like cds and left it there for like eight years
1: because she felt embarrassed she asked a question she got laughed at so she just said screw it i'm not gonna deal with what i don't understand i'm just gonna stuff it in cds
2: She had lost trust in the financial services industry. I got a hold of her on my podcast and I share authentically and vulnerably my own weaknesses and falters and mistakes. And so I'm a human, right? I'm to her. I'm not that guy. I'm very different than that guy. I'm something different. And so she comes to me and she says, I need you to get me out of this funk. There's something I think is true about money that isn't true or myself in relationship to money. And we were able to work that out for her. But this is a woman who deserves to Work with a high quality fiduciary financial advisor, and she's not because the industry isn't serving people who are in, who aren't yet empowered. You got to be pretty empowered to walk your tax returns, your estate documents, your investment return your statements into someone's office, plunk them on their desk, and then have a clear conversation about your goals, values, and priorities. That's. Not everyone is like that, right? So what if you're two or three steps away from that? Well, that's that's where this coaching program comes in. And I don't know, maybe I have a thing for the underdog, or maybe I just like the idea of of meeting people where they're at. I don't it, – it's obviously – you can tell it's a self-expression of mine, but you, you said the same thing my business coach said. What are you doing? Why aren't you focusing? I don't know. I don't know. Let's just see what comes of it. Well,
1: it just – it strikes me like I – we try a lot of things early on when, when we're starting businesses. You know, just I, you, you throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Particularly when you're just trying to get revenue going. But you know, most advisors, I find, I mean, at some point, like we find a thing that works, then we just go all in on that thing. And it seems like you've 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 found your thing. You've got this rapidly growing podcast and website presence. Now you're bringing in $10, 20 plus million dollars a year. It's continuing to happen each year. It's starting to compound, but you're but you're still on like core, course coaching attempt number four or five here, <laughs> and like all excited because you you're doing a, like a new one now that's getting that's getting going. Like, I know I have got a pretty good guess on where you really want to end out deep down. <laughs>
2: did you want me to cry while we're on the air together or it's <laughs> this is deep psychotherapy it's Your choice <laughs> makes for better podcasting it,
1: I, authenticity always makes for good podcasting
2: yes yes i'll grab a tissue yeah i mean look i'm on this planet to make a difference and being a financial advisor is part of how i do that and And I know I made a difference with those women in the last program. And I'll tell you, Michael, I wasn't, I I mean, I have a lot of, I got a lot of mind talk and my my brain is not always my friend, but we got on the last call with those ladies. Uh, By the way, there's also a monthly Zoom call. Okay. So they all get on the call and it was their last one. And I said, all right, wrap it up. Let's start start from where you were at the beginning and what did you get out of the program what were your expectations what are you proud of and it was it was probably one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life and i'm sitting in a hotel room in i don't know phoenix arizona or whatever and these women are sharing they're crying they're saying i got everything i wanted i'm empowered i'm clear i've altered my wardrobe i've got a raise i've got a new career pro- prospects right it was just like Oh my God. Oh my, whoa, we did something here. You know, and if it weren't for that call, to be totally honest with you, I don't know if I would be doing the program again this year because I got a lot going on. But how could you not? How could you not want to repeat that?
1: So, is that more rewarding than the financial planning side of things? Just psychically, well, like
2: how often do you get how often do you get on the call with a high net worth client and say, "Can you please emotionally describe to me the value you've gotten from our relationship right It's not often that a financial planning client really opens up and gets soft and vulnerable and tries to quantify the value you've provided for them now, I know we provide value, and I'm confident in that, but but I'm also called to do this more interpersonal thing. I'm just trying to figure it out.
1: What surprised you overall about just the the path of building the business? Like now that you've been on out on your own five years, has this gone at all the way you expected when you went in your father and said, I just have to go do my own thing for a while? <laughs> I don't know. You must have had some expectation of what was going to happen when you – when you went in,
2: well, yeah, I thought I was going to sell a five hundred dollar course to forty thousand people. Okay, Right,
1: right, right. <laughs> so after the multi million dollar course didn't work out in the first year.
2: Uh huh. Um, what has surprised me the most is how darn profitable traditional financial planning for high net worth clients is. I, I mean, man, it's a great business model, and if you can become a good marketer and a good salesperson, you can write your ticket. And that really is what this business is about. It's not about being a good practitioner because there's good practitioners sitting behind stacks of books in every city in America. This is about being in sales and making a lot of noise so that the right people hear you and then getting them to say yes, getting them to trust you. So I think that really is – I think it was really shocking to me. I thought I had to differentiate because financial planning was – dying, becoming digitized, ta- being taken over. And that I've been able to find a self-expression. I mean, my company values are my values. Hillary's values, right? And I've got three people who now tout my values. <laughs> it's like I get to kind of write the book.
1: So I I guess ironically like you're you're differentiating in yourself and how you're marketing and that brings in business, but you're not actually finding a need to differentiate as much in the process part of what you do because people still value good old-fashioned traditional financial planning and it's really profitable.
2: Yeah, it was about focus, being willing to set a minimum, creating an onboarding process, a system that brings people, qualified prospects into my office. And then once they're here, designing and perfecting a conversation that has me both learn about them and has them hear enough stories from me and learn and be an experience me as a, as a trustworthy person that has them then come back and be in a conversation with me about what I would do with their portfolio and then has them say yes. I mean, that's, I am a student of words, okay? When I hear good financial planning words, I write them down. I have scripts that I practice. And my team says to me, you're so good with words. Like, well, I didn't make them up. I heard them. They were good. I wrote them down and I memorized them. <laughs> and I use them in conversations, right? And that's not to say that I'm a copier on everything I say, but there are things that work in conversations with potential clients, right? Right. And I just make sure that when I hear them, I don't lose them. I mean, I, had, um, I, I get transcripts of other people's podcast episodes all the time. I send it to my assistant and I say, transcribe this. And I go in there and I take the two minutes that I liked and I cut it and I put it in my script library.
1: So you it's, actually have like a, I'm script, a, student of words. a script library.
2: Mm-hmm. If, if I put the word, by the way, I don't have notebooks in my Evernote. Michael, that's that's a that's a symptom of just one of the differences between you and me. I use keyword searches for everything.
1: Oh, see, <laughs> so, I, I see. I can pull, like I compulsively collect and keep so many things. I can't just do keyword searches. There's too many notes.
2: But but I have ways that when I send the note to Evernote, I put the keywords in uh, it that I want. Okay. Yeah, so but no, I don't tag. I don't even use tags. I just put words in the note, okay? So I type in scripts in Evernote. You know, I come up with 50 documents, and there are times when I print those scripts, and I read them, and I read you, over
1: them. You mean as though you had like a notebook called scripts.
2: mundo I just don't over-organize. <laughs> I love Evernote, by yes, the way. Yes,
1: Evernote, Evernote is a glorious thing, and, and glorious in part because... Everybody uses Evernote in their own way. That seems to be different than how others use Evernote. That's part of what makes it a cool program.
2: It is. It's just, a I can't imagine my life without it. Trello
1: and Evernote. How has the role changed for you then over the past couple of years?
2: I think I growed myself up. I went from hiring interns who weren't in the industry for very low compensation to paying legitimate people people who have a career track, a market wage, and that's a that takes something. It changes you as a human being. It's like, I'm going to pay you $90,000 and those are my dollars. <laughs> it's like, you have to know yourself in a particular way <laughs> to agree to that. <laughs> I think that hiring the right people is obviously critical because the team dynamic is 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 important. I put $40,000 into an office last year. So my husband and I share a tw- 2,200 square foot office near the San Jose airport. His is locked off. He runs a hedge fund on the other side. So there's a door in the middle because obviously it has to be secure. So I got a private executive suite and a conference room and a kitchen and a big living room area, which is where we do the mastermind. And I threw a bunch of money at making this office look amazing. And it's a place that every time some people come in, they stop, they look around, they go, this place is amazing. I said, I know. I love coming to work. (laughs) So I don't know if that answers the question about what's changed for me, but a willingness to spend on the things that I think are important to me and my clients, willingness to say no to people who are not my clients, keeping the team focused around first company values and then the projects that they're working on. So we have... We're we're just a super efficient team. We've all read the E Myth. Well oiled machine is one of my company values, and we're all very clear what we're up to on a on a weekly basis. I don't know on a daily basis. I mean, they can manage their own schedules, but we meet every week and we have specific measurable things that we have to have to have done, including me.
1: Is that a traction EOS kind of system that brings you to? Weekly meetings with like weekly things they have to report on.
2: Yeah, someone in my entrepreneurs organization recommended that book, Traction. I haven't read it, but I do think it's the yeah. same thing. Yes, Vern Hamish, something.
1: Yes, scaling, scaling up. up. So the team has like so you do a weekly team meeting and then they all have some key thing that they're supposed to report on or share about how it's doing for the week.
2: Yeah, we have quarterly rocks that we created at the company offsite all-hands meeting last year. We do a planning meeting for 2019 in the third quarter of 2018. And they talk about what they want to create professionally and what they want to create personally. That's all in alignment. I mean, the professional goals are in alignment with the company goals. And so that's how you get buy-in, right? And then you just work really hard. I have a company policy that nobody in my company is allowed to post TGIF on Facebook <laughs> that if you don't love your life, if, if, that means you're that either...
1: thankful for Friday, something else is wrong.
2: <laughs> TGIF means I hate my job. Doesn't it?
1: Yeah. It does kind of have that implication. <laughs> I mean, well, if yeah. you're, if you're too relieved, I feel like there's a little bit of, you know, Hey, I got a, vac-, you know, I, I, I got a special week and come up TGIF. But yeah, if it happens every week, like something's not good in the job
2: right? right. It's like, we either need to shift some things around, or maybe this isn't the right spot on the bus for you. <laughs> and I've never have had to go there, by the way. So then we create weekly promises that are in alignment with their rocks and goals and priorities. I don't tell them what their weekly goals should be. But if they don't fulfill on them, we have a conversation. Okay, well, are you missing resources? Are you missing planning? Are you missing what's going on? Because we want you, this is, running a business is about fulfilling on things. So what do we need to put in? And I think that that's really keeps things clean and keeps people motivated. And we really get to look at why, if we're not fulfilling on a particular goal, why not? That's the best way I know how to keep things moving effectively.
1: So as you look back, anything you wish you'd done differently in like launching the firm and the journey from there to here?
2: I wish I had gone to work for some massive website in their SEO department and just worked for free for like 30 or 45 days and figured it out and started with an eye toward building a website that's a good resource very frustrating to do it now with my calendar. And (laughs) so I do wish I had focused more on that. I think I was a little bit all over the place in the beginning, but I learned lessons from everything. For a couple of years, I paid a business coach $20,000 a year. I think that was a pretty big mistake.
1: That was a mistake. Most people I hear are very appreciative of their coaches. Like why was was business coaching a mistake?
2: I don't think business coaching was. I don't think that was necessarily the right coach for me. I'm a member. I've mentioned the Accelerator Group. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that group cost me $3,500 a year. And the quality of coaching that I get for me for me as a human being, what I what resonates with me is just light years, so clarifying, so empowering, so action-oriented from this group that I I look back at paying 20K for something I was more dissatisfied with and I think, wow, okay, well, lesson learned.
1: You know, for folks that are curious, like we'll we'll put a link out for entrepreneurs organization and the, the EO Accelerator programs. This is uh episode 115. So if you go to Kitsis.com slash one one five. We'll have a a link out for that for I guess no offense to any coaches, but any advisors who are not entirely satisfied with their coach and are curious what a thirty five hundred dollar a year program would do instead of the higher dollar amount they may be paying their coach. So what was the what was the low point for you?
2: One of those first women I brought in when I first went out on my own was someone who was a mentor to me in the past. So she mentored me into my first corporate role. And then she had a low point in her life. She had a bunch of stuff happen, including a divorce. She moved out of a 10,000 square foot house into a sailboat, that kind of stuff. Okay. So I brought her into my business and it exploded. Like we you mean brought her
1: in as a client or brought her in as a teammate?
2: No, 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 no. I brought her in as a teammate. I brought her in on a revenue share with a super low base, and we weren't making profit with the course. So she kept expecting to get paid and kept not getting paid. And it was it absolutely destroyed any personal relationship that we had. I had to fire her. I fired her. I didn't have to. I I fired her. It was devastating. It was devastating. <clears throat> I just will never hire a friend again.
1: Yeah, I was just to say, like what <laughs> What was the lesson learned for you? Like, wrong thing to hire someone on low base and rev share for experimental program, or just don't don't hire someone you're that close to.
2: I so two things that you get to as a manager as a as an as a CEO. If you hire someone, you're the CEO, you're the boss. You get to be very explicit in your speaking about what you expect. You these are your accountabilities and here's what I expect. And because she had been a mentor to me in the past, I was reticent to say, here's what I expect. In fact, I was, I was absolutely refusal to say, here's what I expect. It seemed like she, she had always been above me. How could I tell her I expect this? And then she would do crazy things, crazy, crazy <laughs> so it was very clear that that had to end. That was another thing I let go too far, where my husband finally said, "Okay, enough. You you need to take action." <laughs> it was I was so sad, but so yeah, definitely a low point.
1: So for others who are coming into the business, and and frankly, I'm thinking about other other women coming into the business in particular. You know, as you know, we have appallingly low. Percentage of female CFPs and a number that basically hasn't moved for fifteen odd years. Like, what advice would you give to young women looking to come in to be a financial planner or start a firm today?
2: Gosh, maybe you're in a better position to give advice about that. Well, I mean, as
1: you said, like you you started out as the wrong age and the wrong gender. (laughs) Those were your (laughs) words. I'm not I'm not judging here. Those were your (laughs) words, but but you know you're you're still here and you survived and now you're crushing it. (laughs)
2: Well, I would say go find a female-oriented firm. If I could paint my career, you know, if I could paint it the way I would rewind and do it, go find a female-oriented firm that's fee-only fiduciary. Get yourself in some kind of apprenticeship or junior position in that firm and just work it. Do your best, get your education, and You know, you'll either be offered some kind of partnership track or you'll get kicked out of that firm and go to another firm where your career will elevate. And at some point you'll naturally start taking on your own clients. I mean, it's really hard to get started as a fee only fiduciary, right?
1: It's hard, Um, I think, even to find female oriented firms that are are fee only fiduciaries.
2: Yeah. And I finally got found got in a Facebook group where there's like seven of us, and we're looking for more. <laughs> so if you're listening, we're Femme Fee Only Financial Advisors on Facebook. Femme and, Fee
1: Only Financial Advisors.
2: Yeah. If, if, yeah, I'll okay. send you the we'll, link. We'll,
1: we'll get that added to the uh,
2: thank you list as well. I like guess for
1: either, either female fee only advisors who want to join the group, or I guess if you're willing, uh, women who are seeking to work with one of those folks who hopefully you will let into the group so that they can try to find a job. You can decide whether you want to let Maybe. them in or that's,
2: not. Yeah, that's not the design of the group right now, but I've, I'll talk to the other six women in the group and see what we can do. And, you know, it doesn't, again, I mean, in a perfect world, it's female oriented. You know, I know at Yeski Bowie, you know, one half of Yeski Bowie is a woman and she's probably the, the queen of the industry right now. I, most of you know who I'm talking about, Alisa Bui. And they've got a very robust mentorship junior advisor program. I mean, so hopefully that spreads and I'm pleased to have, be able to employ one female advisor now and possibly more in the future. But yeah, it's, it's hard to find. So you got a network and you got to build relationships and stay in touch and beat the bushes. And that, I mean, but that's what it's like to be a financial advisor. So welcome to, welcome to my
0: world.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I had a advisor ask me the other day, like he, he wants to get a job at a particular firm, but like he's he's not sure how to reach out or or like if it would be weird if he reaches out cold. And I told him, like, look, if they're really not interested in hiring and they don't, they they just aren't interested, like they'll blow you off or they won't take it well. But if they're at all thinking about hiring, the mere fact that you're willing to proactively put yourself out there and take the risk of reaching out to a stranger to try to find a job opportunity for most advisors who've ever done business development. They kind of respect you more for it because they know how hard it is and how hard it is to find people who can who are willing to do that.
2: It shows gumption, yeah. courage
1: so you know for anyone who's listening like don't don't be afraid to do that outreach. It may not work out well, but nor will every prospect you try to get <laughs> turn into a client
2: here Here's an idea. try for a hundred nos. If your goal is to get a hundred nos, I can almost promise you by the time you get that hundredth no, you'll have a job
1: <laughs> That's a goal. I like that. That's a goal. <laughs> so as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast about success and one of the things we always talk about is just that word success means different things to different people. And so, you know, you're now on track with this incredibly successful firm that's growing and compounding, but I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: If I can spend more of my life engaged in infinite concerns, Concerns that can never be fulfilled on versus finite concerns, I think I will consider that success. And what I mean is I really want to put myself to work for humanity, that I'm not motivated to go to work on climate change and more power to the people who are, that I'm deeply engaged. Like As you can tell, I've got my fingers in the dirt about... How to enable and empower people to live free, abundant lives. And so I'm on mission, I'm on purpose, and I'm blessed that I feel like I'm plugged into that. I think a lot of people are looking for their quote unquote purpose. And by the way, it's not to be a photographer. You get what I'm saying? Like, they, people, People want their lives to be about a big thing and there are a lot people are searching for what that is. Well, I, I think I've just been given this gift. Like I know what it is. I don't necessarily know how it manifests. But if I can spend more of my life engaged in that spiritual, meaningful inquiry and producing real results, then that then I'm then I'm a success.
1: I, I am struck though, just as, as you say that, that like you're doing that in the career you're in now, but you didn't come into this to do it right? I mean, like you, you land in your dad's firm, he pulled you in, or it sounded like a good opportunity. But it sounds like that, that whole, the whole framing around the purpose you just articulated came, like years later.
2: That's true. That's true. I have a very blessed life. Then, in you know, I, I've become very introspective. Uh, I live an examined life. And, I mean, we haven't talked about my whole life, but I've been through a lot of stuff. And I do think that the people who get beat up by life the most maybe come out the most spiritual. <laughs> Okay. And you're right. There are a lot of interweaving threads. I mean, it's like that speech that Steve Jobs gave at Stanford about how you can't explain or map out your life until you look back at it. You look back at everything that you did and experienced and got good at, and then you put it all together and you make magic. And I don't know that I'm making magic. I mean, I'm making some magic. I'm not making iPod magic, but I'm pleased to be able to pull from my past and to weave what I'm currently doing into new inquiries and new opportunities to live a more meaningful life. So I hope that answers I your question. I think it's
1: amazing. It, it is a good, it is a good point though, that just you, you can't often explain how it mapped out until after the fact it, it's part of why even for me, i become like less focused on setting long-term goals. Cause frankly, I'm not really sure where the heck this stuff is going I just know like good habits of helping people seem to turn out pretty good in the long run. So we're going to stick with that.
2: I think we're saying the same thing, Michael.
1: Well, thank you, Hillary, (laughs) for joining us and sharing your story on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a great show.
0: Thanks for doing it, Michael. It makes a huge difference.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.